you know, like I told the guys um, on Sunday, we've been preparing for this moment all year. And so now we just need to continue on the routines that we've been on um, and, you know, be the best team we've been all season. All right, well, here we're going to find out. Are they ready? We will find out in just a few hours or a couple days. I mean, depending on when you're listening to our show, that game might be just a couple minutes away. Welcome to Always College Football. We appreciate you coming to us. I view today, I'm taping this on Tuesday night. Full disclosure, you guys are part of the trust tree, so don't tell anybody. But I'm taping this on Tuesday night. We're going to put the show out on Wednesday. We are about to embark on my favorite sequence of days on the football calendar. I love what we have on Thursday with the NFL and then we have the Egg Bowl. I love that now Black Friday has become a huge day for matchups that we have to look forward to, like Oregon State and Oregon. That being on Black Friday is going to be amazing. We have Texas Tech and Texas on Friday. That's going to be incredible as well. And then, because that's the appetizer, we move into a full slate of Saturday action, like the Iron Bowl. Ohio State and Michigan in the game. So many different Big 12 conference championship game scenarios that we need to break down. Georgia and Georgia Tech. Georgia's going on the road. Florida State, a top five team on the road at Florida. We're going to break down all of these games to the best of our deal. We're going to break down the Apple Cup and why I think these teams are crazy similar in a lot of different areas. So there's a lot of breakdowns that we need to get to, but we also, because it's a Wednesday show, we need to break down the college football playoff rankings from last night. Here's what I think they got right. Here's what they got wrong. Here's how I think they're trying to justify it. Here's why the move was pretty significant and why there's really not a whole lot that if that you can do if you're Texas and Alabama, at least at the moment. So we'll break all of that down here on a Wednesday edition, a special edition holiday edition of Always College Football. So let's kick it off with some rankings reaction. College Football Committee Rankings Breakdown. We do it here every single Wednesday. This week will be no different. I'm fresh off the set, just finished up the show. A couple takeaways that I think are of significance. Let's start at number one. Georgia is at number one. Nothing to really talk about there. Nothing to really break down. I'd love to try to make, oh, well, let's make an argument on behalf of some. No, I mean, Georgia's one. It, it makes perfect sense. Number two is where I think it begins to get a little bit interesting. Not that I have anything against Ohio State. I don't. But I thought Joey brought up a really interesting point today in assessing, well, why doesn't Washington, if their resume is so strong, why don't they jump up over, over Michigan? Which I think we should maybe push back just one step further. Well, if their resume is so strong, why don't we just put them ahead of Ohio State? Because if we're going off of resume, Washington has and has had for a while arguably the second best resume, or at least in the mix, especially with the addition of the win against Oregon State. That was a really good win on the road. They've now run a gauntlet and have faced multiple ranked teams in the last handful of weeks. Arizona win is looking better and better. So they have three wins. If you look at what Washington's accomplished, Washington has beaten three teams that are currently ranked in the top 16. You have Arizona, Oregon State, and Oregon. That's pretty sporty. Pretty sporty resume for the Washington Huskies. So if they would have moved them all the way to two, I wouldn't have had a problem with it. They moved them to four, which is fine. No problem with two and three as well. Actually, the committee's rankings were exactly how my rankings were. So we're on the same page. At number four, Florida State was there. They moved down to five. But it wasn't so much, and I'm happy to hear that it's not at the moment about Jordan Travis's injury. If you're going to penalize them based on the injury, that's absurd. 
uh, don't agree with that at all. At least give Tate Rodemaker the opportunity, Rodemaker the opportunity to prove what he can do here in the next couple of weeks against Florida and then against Louisville in the ACC championship game. At six, it's Oregon. Oregon now with Louisville, uh, with uh, Utah's loss now has no wins against teams that are currently ranked in the top 25. I think Oregon's really good. I've said that from the beginning. Offensively speaking and defensively, I think they are excellent. Great eye test, great talent, great personnel, everything that you could possibly want. But their resume is not where it needs to be. But the committee's told us that they view Oregon as superior to Texas and Alabama. They've been there from the beginning of the rankings, which is perfectly fine. Texas is at seven. They're ahead of Bama. They beat them head to head. And there's already starting to become that groundswell of support. And I know that obviously with where I went to school, um, a lot of people want my opinion on the topic. Um, Y'all, we have to acknowledge the results. We have to acknowledge the result. It's as simple as that. I mean, if, if the committee is to put Bama ahead of Texas at the moment, they would be creating a very slippery slope and precedent that we don't want college football to have because if you put Bama ahead of Texas then you are basically saying that the regular season doesn't matter and we don't want that that's not good for anybody and look I'm I'm as big a Bama fan as you'll find I I suppose but that's not good for anybody that's not good for the sport that's not good for the health of the sport so that's not going to happen I don't see Bama jumping Texas I just don't see it happening if Texas loses to Texas Tech this week if Texas loses in the Big 12 title game to whoever it is they play against then yeah, Bama will of course jump ahead, but they can't jump ahead right now. Another thing that I thought of significance in this week's rankings, a couple of movements that I didn't necessarily agree with. Tennessee, uh, they have now dropped uh, three spots from 18 to 21. They have gotten their doors blown off the last two weeks. Their doors blown off. They've been outscored in the last two weeks, 74 to 17 in the last two weeks. And they've dropped now to number 21. I... I understand that. I, I get it. But when you lose to Bama, Georgia, Missouri, those are three really good teams. Like no one's going to doubt you, but it was more how they lost. And if they're going to value the eye test and all these other examples, then how can you justify at the moment having Oregon State at 16, who just dropped five spots after a close two point loss where they had the ball with the chance to potentially win the game, had Washington in the third and short where Michael Penix had to throw a back shoulder to put the game on ice. They lost by two. To a team that's ranked fourth, Tennessee has gotten outscored by 57 points in the last two weeks, and they drop only three spots. Doesn't make sense, but I digress. Uh, Who should Oregon State be in front of? That's what the committee and the people on the desk asked me about today. I said, well, I could make a pretty good argument in favor of them being in front of Oklahoma. I could make a decent argument in favor of them being in front of LSU. Um, they're not going to be in front of Arizona. Arizona beat them. So I, I'm not going to push back on that. But just I just felt like it was a little bit unequal. I think Tennessee should be lower. Uh, I don't know why Tennessee is sitting at 21. I think you can make a case they shouldn't be in the top 25, if I'm going to be completely honest. Uh, Clemson's back in. That helps Florida State. NC State's in. That helps Louisville. And anything that helps Louisville helps Florida State. So there's also this notion of, well, hey, I mean, I heard people today say, well, I think Texas could jump Florida State. Y'all, I don't see it happening. I just don't see it happening. If regardless of what happens in the other leagues, if there's a spot available and Florida State is 13 and 0, it's not going to happen. I mean, I would be absolutely shocked. They won all their games. The results have to matter. Have to matter. If they won all their games and the teams are being measured against didn't, We should give the benefit of the doubt to the Florida State team that won all their games. 
And by the way, it's not like they ran a group of, a group of five schedule. They beat a power five team, a bunch of power five teams, and route to a possible playoff berth. So I, I don't know why this is some groundswell of support for for a program outside of outside of Florida State. I don't get it. I think if Florida State's thirteen zero, they'll be in. There's no way the committee is going to create that precedent where they leave out a power five team from that wins their conference undefeated that also played a non-conference opponent that's currently ranked in the top 14. I don't see it. And with the win against a team that's currently in the top 10 in the title game. I don't see it. But a lot of people you know, seem to know more than me, I suppose. But I digress. Uh, let's get to the breakdowns. So many games that we want to get to. The rankings are the rankings. We'll get back to those again next week. Tons of takeaways. Tons of things to continue to kind of push back at. But let's be real. The top eight teams haven't lost since the rankings came out. <laughs> so there's only so much movement that can happen, but we try to make the most of it for sure and try to have some fun, try to have some good, healthy debate in there as well. But what do we do this for? We do this for the game. So let's break them down. We get some big games on Rivalry Weekend. This weekend preview is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It's not college football season without the delicious taste of an ice-cold Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. Let's get things kicked off with some Friday nighters. Yeah, we're not going to go in our normal arrangement this week. It's rivalry week. We're going to do things weird. Let's get let's get off the charts and kick things off with the platypus trophy. All right, Oregon State and Oregon will kick it off. It's going to be an awesome game. With a win, Oregon clinches a spot in the Pac-12 title game. They also can get in with an Arizona loss, but Arizona is probably unlikely to lose to Arizona State. But anything's possible. A couple of questions in this game. Question number one, can Oregon State effectively shrink the game? It was on display last week, at least there in the second half. Remember that drive that Oregon State went on, just a methodical, gosh, it felt like 100 plays, but just a methodical 10-minute drive, basically just totally took the air out of the football and disrupted the rhythm of the Washington passing attack. Not that they needed a lot of help last week. It was raining sideways. But it disrupted the offensive rhythm. Right now, Bo Nix and company are playing with a ridiculous rhythm. So I'm not sure that Oregon State right now, looking at what they have, and I think they're pretty good rushing the quarterback. I think they're pretty good as far as getting after the passer. But Oregon's elite when it comes to protecting Bo Nix, and Bo Nix is elite when it comes to getting the ball out on time. I think the best way to defend them is by shrinking the game, by playing slow, by playing methodical, and then trying to create some big plays. That's question number two. Can Oregon State create some big plays in the game? Now, DJ Uyunglele has had a pretty good year. Those that have only watched last week will say, I don't know. You know, he looks the same to me. There have been a lot of progress made by DJ Uyunglele. I think he has decent receivers, too, in Silas Bolden and Anthony Gold. They have solid veilings as a solid option at tight end. We all know that it's going to run through the rushing game. Damian Martinez is going to be the bell cow. He's going to get a ton of totes. He's going to have a ton of opportunities. So they're going to try to effectively shrink the game by running it for sure. But maybe you got to be real cognizant of him pulling up and hitting a deep ball down the field. That's what Oregon State does. They marry up the run to the pass. They get you thinking it's all about the run. Those safeties get greedy. They come down to the box. Boom, you hit them over the top. And if you look at if you look at Oregon safeties, I do think they are a little greedy. I think they're good. 
I think they are a little greedy from time to time. And you can rock them to sleep with over and over and over again where they're having to fill and run support. So that's going to be really important. The other thing, can Oregon effectively run the football? It's a lot about the running game. A lot of people will talk about Bo Nix and the efficiency of the passing game. Totally accurate. Totally fair. Big reason why Oregon's in the spot that they're in. But I still, and this might not be a popular opinion, but if you watch Bucky Irving, I think he's their best player. I still think he's their best player. I think he's that electric. He is so good. So good. When you look at what he can do in the open field, and if you look at Oregon State, I think they're vulnerable in the secondary. I do. But I do think they give a chance against the run. I think they have a chance to kind of slow things down, keep it in check, keep the ball in front of them, and keep Oregon from manufacturing some big plays. And then the other thing too, will Oregon continue to do an excellent job in keeping Bo Nix upright? I think a lot of this will have to do with their offensive plan, how quickly they're going to get the ball out of his hands, how effectively they can run the football, how much they'll do some misdirection. All of those things could factor in. But Oregon's Oregon's a team that allows like half a sack a game. I mean, like we're talking like so far this year, like four sacks or somewhere abouts, not a lot. Oregon State comes in averaging over three sacks per game. So they're a team that can flat out pin their ears back and come after you. They can get it done. So it's going to be very interesting to see who wins at the line of scrimmage because I do believe that this is a game that will come down to the line of scrimmage. You're going to see a lot of these games, by the way, here this weekend. While we talk about receivers and quarterbacks and great weapons on the perimeter, a lot of rivalry games are determined at the line of scrimmage. You are built to beat your rival. And that's where a lot of these games will come. As far as some trends are concerned, Oregon is 8-2 and two against the spread as a favorite in 2023. Oregon State is 11-3 and three against the spread as a road underdog since 2019. I think Oregon wins this one. They're operating with too much efficiency. I think that they can create some opportunities. With the weather, it was difficult to get a real assessment on where Oregon State's secondary is. I think they're better. I think they're okay. They're better than they were six, seven weeks ago for sure. But I don't think we have a real good indicator of just how much better they are. So I think Oregon handles Oregon State, and I think it'll be a good quality matchup, at least for a half. But ultimately, Oregon just has a little bit too much firepower, and they pull away as the game moves along. Let's go on to another Friday nighter. This will be the Texas Tech Red Raiders at the Texas Longhorns. They're number seven. They're about a two-touchdown favorite. So this will be Friday, 7.30 Eastern time on ABC. Now, Texas has not clinched a spot in the Big 12 title game just yet. I must be completely honest. I thought they did, (laughs) but but they have not. There is one scenario in which the Longhorns would not be playing on championship Saturday. That would mean they'd lose to Texas Tech. Oklahoma would beat TCU. Oklahoma State would beat BYU. And Kansas State would lose to Iowa State. In that scenario, they would not be in the Big 12 title game. So it's possible, but looking at, analytics, it's like a 4% chance. So (laughs) if you feel good about putting the money on a parlay like that, go for it, my friend. But I am not going to indulge. A couple things about this matchup. This is one that kind of has been talked about for a while, dating back to August. And if you guys remember and you guys listened to some of our summer podcasts, this was a big topic of conversation with Brett Yarmark, the Big 12 commissioner. He was attending a Red Raider Club kickoff luncheon. And they were sitting up there with Joey McGuire and and basically people were asking your mark about about Joey McGuire and hey, are you gonna be able to, you know, play Texas or whatever? And he told Joey McGuire to quote, take care of business against the Longhorns. Of course, the Longhorns leaving the Big Twelve. This will be their final Big Twelve regular season game. So your mark in the Big Twelve office, I thought it was just in fun. I I thought it was an interesting 
you know, here we are. It's a game we talked about in August, and here we are sitting final week of the regular season, bringing up a funny story from back in the day. But a couple of things in this one, what will decide the outcome? Can Texas Tech run the football? That's the big question. Because a lot of people are not familiar with Taj Brooks, and he is a workhorse for the Red Raiders. An awesome back. Really, really good. I have been thoroughly impressed with what I've seen from him. He has 249 carries. That's second most in the FBS this year. And in the last three games, Manor, Texas, that's where he's from, by the way, he's rushed for 461 yards and three touchdowns in the last three games. So that's an average about a buck 54 over the last three. And they've had a three-game winning streak as a result of his brilliance. Uh, now, most of the damage that Texas Tech has created, if you watch them, a lot of it's really downhill. They're really a between-the-tackles run team. And looking at some of the percentages, about 72% of their rushing yardage is between the tackles. It's a pretty good stat. And one that I think is very important in this game. And just so you know, they are fifth in college football as far as the percentage of the rushing yardage that comes between the tackles. So that's a really high number. A lot of teams do it outside the tackles. A lot of teams do it on scramble drills. No, there's right between the tackles. You know what's coming. And the problem with that type of approach is that you're playing against the Texas defensive tackles that don't give up anything on the ground. Iowa State last week rushed for nine yards. They are fifth in college football against the run, about 83 yards a game given up. And they're one of a just uh, one of just nine teams in the country that are averaging less than three yards per carry. So Byron Murphy to Vondre Sweat, uh, they are really big. They are really physical and they are a massive problem for every single team that's trying to run the ball downhill. They completely took over the game last week. I would think that's going to be a real possibility again this year. But if you're going to move the ball against Texas, it's not going to be on the ground. So far, Texas this season has given up 3,703 yards of offense. Seems like a lot, but over the course of an 11-game season, it's really not that many. The problem is 75% of those yards have come through the year. That is 130th as far as percentages in college football. So it's skewed. They're great against the run. Don't give up hardly anything on the ground. Just 25% of the offense production against them this year is on the ground. 75, however, through the year, and that's 130th. An important stat when taking that into account, which means Taj is going to be important at running back, but it's really going to shift to more Xavier White, who's number 14. He averages a lot of big plays, about nine yards after catch per reception. He's a big play threat and can be a big problem for him. Another guy that you need to be keeping an eye on for Texas Tech is Miles Price. He's been a little banged up lately, but they remain hopeful at this point that he'll be able to go. He is excellent after the catch. Not as much down the field. Xavier White's your guy down the field. But Miles Price is your guy. You kind of get him on screens. You get him and he takes off with it. And he's, he's really difficult to bring down in the open field. Another injury, I just mentioned what Miles Price is dealing with. Texas Tech is also potentially going to be without their linebacker, Steve Linton who's one of their better defenders, and he's missed the last three games. Will he be back? It'd be big to get his presence back at linebacker. He's had a couple of big forced fumbles against Baylor, and he would just be a really important piece to kind of add, knowing what Texas can attack you with and how 
they can attack you. But the big question for Texas, and it remains this and has been this for, gosh, as long as I can remember, Texas has got to be able to finish drives. And if not in this game, then the next game, and if they get in the playoff, they have to be able to finish drives. Because right now they have 42 red zone penetrations this year, just 19 red zone touchdowns. 45% or so touchdown rate, that's 127th in the FBS. The good news is they're great on third down. And on so much of college football now is determined on third down and red zone. So are you scoring touchdowns in the red zone? If yes, you're probably doing pretty good. If you're getting off the field on third down, you're probably doing pretty well. Well, they're not scoring touchdowns on offense, but they are getting off the field on third down. They're giving up just 26.6% conversions on third down. That's number one in the FBS. And then one of the teams that we've talked about this season, Texas Tech was one of the teams we liked a lot coming into the year. And they have been one of the biggest underachievers uh, so far this season. It's disappointing. I'm not going to lie. I had them in my top 25 in the preseason. And usually when you look at teams that have underachieved greatly, it's either because of a couple things. One, injuries. If you have injuries, it's going to be tough to potentially overcome. But they've lost Tyler Shuck. They've lost a couple other guys. But injuries aren't really the real reason why Texas Tech has underachieved this year. They've underachieved because they're turnovers. They are turning the ball over. At least they have quite a bit this year. They're minus six in the turnover margin. 12 of the 18 turnovers they've had this year came against BYU, Oregon, and Kansas State. They've only forced 12. So that's 105th. So they are not doing a great job as far as turning people over. And they also have done a great job in some of their bigger games where they have actually turned it over quite a bit themselves. So a couple trends, Texas and Texas Tech games have gone under the total in five straight games, and four of the last five Texas home games have gone under the total. I think Texas handles their business. I think it's a bad matchup for Texas Tech. They got them last year. They surprised them last year in Lubbock. I don't think that's going to be the case this year. I think Texas handles their business and rolls there on Friday night. Let's move into the game. Not that there's going to be, uh, there's a lot of the games this weekend, but there's one involving the team up north against Ohio or as we like to call them, Ohio State and Michigan. <laughs> now, the winner, of course, will go to the Big Ten title game. And this will be just the 10th time in major college football history that two teams enter a regular season matchup at 11-0 or better, and just the fifth since 1900. So it's going to be the third, actually, involving Ohio State and Michigan, and all of them have come since 2006. Historically. It has not been very kind to the Buckeyes in Ann Arbor. When these two teams are both in the top five, Buckeyes are just one, three, and one in Ann Arbor, but they've been really good at home. Another historical aspect of this is that Michigan has not fared well in top five matchups at all. At all. They are just 724 and one in top five matchups in the poll era. So they have not done a great job. Statistically speaking, there's a lot of similarities here. Scoring offense, Michigan's 38, Ohio State's 33. Total offense, Michigan's 400, Ohio State's 430. Rushing offense, 171 to 145. Michigan to Ohio State. Scoring defense, nine points versus 9.3 points. Like These teams match up really well. They're built to beat each other. Okay? <laughs> They're built to beat each other. And that's what's so awesome about this matchup. Okay? So, let's start with the big question number one. Which team is more effective running the football? Now, Michigan has not really been a big play threat on the ground this year. They've kind of churned it out a little bit more than they have in the past. They're averaging about four and a half yards a carry. That's 54th in college football. And Ohio State, meanwhile, even in spite of being without their starting running back for a handful of games, 
they're at about 4.33. They're 69th. So you got 54th and 69th as far as yards per carry. But these are going to be some elite defenses that they're going to be going up against. And Blake Corum is healthy for the first time heading into the Ohio State game in his career. He had an ankle injury that kind of limited his touches in 21. And last year he hurt his knee in the game prior to the Ohio State game. So he's never really been healthy for this one. So you would imagine that he's pent up and excited, ready to roll against the Buckeyes in the biggest matchup of their season. Travion Henderson, on the other on the other hand, for Ohio State. I've kind of I, I you just kind of become used to watching him just take off in the open field. Right. I mean, it, when he does, it's like, oh, well, Travion Henderson went the distance again. It's not, you know, it's not that big a deal. Like he only went for a 70 yard gain. You just become used to it to an extent. And he was very efficient last week. 15 carries, nearly a buck 50. He's had 300 yard games in the last month. So he's moving in the right direction. You could tell that he's healthier. I mean, he is the home run hitter. And against maybe the best defense, or at least one of the best defenses that Ohio State's faced this year, he was arguably the difference against Notre Dame with his big run that kind of broke things open just a little bit. A couple matchups within the matchup. Uh, Travion Henderson already talked about him a little bit against Michigan's front seven. That's going to be fascinating. Really fascinating. Then we want to take it just one step further. Travion Henderson and maybe the Michigan pass rush against Travion Henderson running the football and Ohio State's offensive line. So basically, Michigan's defense against Ohio State's offensive line. Well, looking at how things have gone for Ohio State along the front, I think their offensive line has some flaws. Um, but it was a little evident based on their willingness to go to the portal to try to land two starting tackles. They swung a missed on a couple guys. They ended up getting... You know, Simmons, who's been solid, and then they had to plug and play Josh Fryer at right tackle, who's given up quite a bit of pressure this year. The other question was at center coming into the season. You know, who would be able to man that spot? Whipler decided to leave. Well, in comes Carson Hinsman. He's given up some problems up the middle as well. So this is a group that can be at times susceptible to an elite pass rush. And if you look at what Michigan did last week and what they've done all year long, they are wreaking havoc against a lot of teams, not just against the run, but also in the pass rush as well. They have edge rushers that are just a handful, like Braden McGregor, edge rusher that's outstanding. A couple of defensive tackles, Mason Graham, Cam Good. These guys are outstanding. More edge rusher, Derek Moore, Josiah Stewart. These guys are all, I mean, you they just roll them. I mean, it's like every series, it's like a different guy. So they're always fresh. They've been rolling all season long, so you know they're super fresh for this one. Fatigue will not be a factor for Michigan's pass rush, and I think they do have a considerable advantage against Ohio State's offensive line. Now let's go to Michigan's offensive line against Ohio State's defensive line. One of the questions for Michigan, and they've been a strong unit that has improved gradually over the course of the season up until the last two weeks. Now, the offensive line the last couple of weeks, for whatever reason, has just not really played very well. And much like Ohio State, it's the right tackle that can at times be a little bit of a problem. Now, that's Carson Barnhart, not calling him out, but he's a guy that they need to be real mindful of. And I would think that Ohio State's probably trying to attack that side. So you can leave a tight end over there. You can leave running backs in over there. You can help him out a lot, and you might have to. But 
that's going to be a position I'm watching closely. Now, it also sounds like Ladarius Henderson, who missed last week, should be good to go at left tackle. But the tackle spot is of a little bit of concern if I'm the Michigan Wolverines. The good news is that Ohio State might be a team that can pressure you, and they might be a team that has talent, but it hasn't necessarily matriculated into performance on a regular basis. Jack Sawyer and Tui Molao, JT Tui Molao, they're talented guys, but their impact on the game, I would think for guys with that skill set and that talent level should be higher. Like they, I feel like those guys could take over the game every week and it just doesn't happen. So I'll be watching those guys very closely, both teams, frankly, I'll be watching both sets of tackles, both Michigan's and Ohio State's against the defensive lines they'll be facing off against because that could very easily determine the game. Another fantastic matchup in the game is cornerback Will Johnson against Marvin Harrison. Now, Will Johnson has given up just eight receptions this season as the primary cover guy. Meanwhile, we know bigger the game, better it seems like Marvin Harrison plays. He is arguably the best player on both teams. So if the opportunity presents itself and he's in a one-on-one, can he win on a consistent enough basis against Will Johnson, who's an elite All-American caliber corner in one-on-one situations? But not to lose sight of that one, because if Will Johnson wins that one, that's that's a huge, huge, huge coup for the Michigan Wolverines. I don't think he will. I don't know if anyone can, but I know he's sure going to try. The inside slot guy is also going to be very important. That's Mike Sainer still. He's going to be working against Emeka Igbuka. Now, Sainer still has really improved from year one to year two. He was at one point a receiver and went back and forth. He's played slot corner. He's played uh, He's played on the perimeter. He's been a, a situational blitz guy, but he's really kind of come into his own and had maybe the best performance of his career last week against Maryland, a couple interceptions. And Nick Buka has missed a couple games this year, but when he's had to be there, he's been there. He seems to always step up when the opportunity presents itself, a la big play against Notre Dame. He hits, he hitches it up right there before the goal line on third and 17 or whatever it was for the first down. So Igbuka against Sainer still is also a massive matchup. And then finally, let's talk about the quarterbacks. I know they're not going to be going face to face, right? I understand that. Um, let's talk about JJ McCarthy's matchup first. JJ McCarthy, Roman Wilson needs to be at hundred percent. Hopefully, a uh, little banged up last week. Colson Loveland, I think, is going to need to be at uh, at a high level in this game as well. Those two guys need to play great. And then if you look at Cornelius Johnson, he was a huge difference maker in the game last year on a catch and run. Will he be a difference maker again? Uh, Samaj Morgan, Tyler Morris, other guys, uh, you're not going to be super scared of those guys. So I think the big thing is, is Roman Wilson at 100%? If not, can Colson Loveland and Cornelius Johnson handle the workload? And J.J. McCarthy's got to play better. He did not play well last week. Uh, that was an anomaly performance because he's usually been pretty steady. But he has got to play better than he did last week, especially against a group that has not given up very many big plays. They're number one in pass defense, just 144 yards a game given up. And they are first in the fewest pay- plays that have gone for 40-plus yards in college football. They've given up just one of those. So the things that they won with last year are probably not going to be the same things that they win with this year. Worth noting. And then on the other side, Kyle McCord, I think, has grown. I don't think he's C.J. Stroud. Uh, I don't think he's Bo Nix. I don't think he's Michael Penix. I don't think he's Jaden Daniels. But I think Kyle McCord understands who Kyle McCord is. I think he knows what he can get away with. But the things that we've seen at times from him this year, he cannot be gun-shy in this game. He's got to cut it loose. 
He's got to be, he has to harness the fear of failure and just rip it. This might be a game that's decided by punts and field position. I think it's going to be a low scoring outfit. I do. I think it's going to be a really low scoring game where the teams match up really, really well, have tons of respect for both sides defensively. I think it's going to be a low scoring matchup. So don't take the unnecessary risk, but if it's there, trust yourself. You can do it. He has enough talent to be able to do it. I was very much leaning in heavily in favor of Michigan in this one, but seeing them play the last couple of weeks, I have softened my stance. I think Michigan wins the game, but I think it's going to be a close one. I'm thinking nail biter and I'm thinking low scoring 21, 17, 17, 14, 24, 21 in that vicinity, low scoring game, great defenses, two coaches that want to play ball control, limit possessions with Jim Harbaugh being out. Sharon Moore's in charge. So it's probably going to be a little more conservative. I think Ryan Dale will probably try to press the gas a little bit to get them out of their comfort zone. But I think it's going to be a tremendous game with two of the best teams in college football going toe to toe. Have you ever dreamed of hitting the road in your very own customized Mercedes Benz Sprinter? Follow college football all season long by hitting all the biggest games in college football's most celebrated stadiums. At ESPN, we dreamed that dream. And with the help of Mercedes Benz, we made it happen. This year, our very own Jen Latta has teamed up with Mercedes-Benz designers to create a road-ready, fully functional, state-of-the-art podcast studio on wheels. The ride is pure Mercedes-Benz with all-wheel drive and the latest driver assistance, safety, and tech. The podcast studio must be seen and heard to be believed. A spacious and chill conversation space with mics, camera, and mixing board to capture the action. On board, Jen Latta, We'll be interviewing some of the biggest names in college football. All points to Mercedes-Benz for always bringing some extra. Out back of the Sprinter, they're innovating. Pushing the science of the tailgate, complete with grill, cooler, TV monitors, and more. This is hashtag van life meets the fan life. To get an inside look to this one-of-a-kind, blow-your-mind collaboration came together, visit mbvans.com slash Sprinter Labs. The Mercedes-Benz ESPN College Football Podcast Sprinter coming soon to a game near you. Mmm. You smell that? That's the scent of fresh turf and freshly cracked Dr. Pepper, which can only mean one thing. It's college football season. So block off your Saturdays and swipe a sweet Dr. Pepper from the mini fridge because there's a new season of high kicks, long throws and fansville commercial breaks to carry you all the way to the West coast games. That's right. The fans are back and this year things are heating up. We're talking about hot takes, more heartbreak, more layers of face paint. Get ready to drink in all the drama this season with the help of the most delicious college football tradition. There is Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. The number five Florida State Seminoles, newly number five Florida State Seminoles, head to the swamp. This will be Saturday, 7 o'clock Eastern time on ESPN. Florida State about a touchdown favorite or so at the moment. Florida won three straight meetings from 2018 to 2021 before losing last week last year in Tallahassee. And the Gators are 3-12 and 12 in the series when the Seminoles are in the top five in the AP poll with five straight losses. The last time they beat a top five Seminole team was in 1997. So history is very much against 
the Florida Gators and a recent history is very much against the Florida Gators as well. They've lost four straight games, but three of the four have come against teams that are currently ranked in the top 15. It is a battle of the backup quarterbacks. And uh, we'll start with Graham Mertz being out. At least we'll start there. Because um, I don't know how many people are aware that he is not available. Because uh, there was he hurt his collarbone. There was hope and, and some optimism that maybe it wasn't a fracture. Maybe he'd be okay. They said it was not displaced. But it's not something that's at the moment going to require surgery. But he's unavailable for this one either way. So was bummed to see that Graham Mertz, he had a great year, by the way. And if the Florida Gators lose, then his season is obviously over because they won't go to a bowl game. But he'd made great strides this year at Florida and should be proud of, of just how much he's improved from where he was a year ago at Wisconsin. This means that Florida will officially turn to Max Brown. And as of right now, I don't know a ton about him. I've been able to kind of reach out to some folks that are more familiar. Um, he completed four of five for 56 and, and had seven carries for 42 yards against Missouri. So I got to see a limited bit of work, but I don't know a ton about the guy. I don't know a ton about his skill set. He's got some good mobility, according to the people I talked to. And it seems like that Billy Napier actually really likes his future, but this is not going to be a, a great spot to go into, especially understanding what's going to be coming against you with the pass rush that Florida State is likely going to bring. Jordan Travis on the other side, he's the one that everybody knows about. And it was one of the more heartbreaking experiences I've had as a as a college football analyst, seeing him go down last week with with what is likely to be a career ender or career ender at Florida State, not a career ender from a permanent standpoint, but a career ender at Florida State. To see his college career end on the field like that was really disappointing. Well, here comes Tate Rodemaker, and so far statistically, here's what I got: he is twenty of thirty five. This year with five touchdowns against zero interceptions. Now, 23 of those attempts came last week against North Alabama. So not a ton of experience this season against top tier competition, but he did get quite a bit of burn last year against Louisville. And he actually led, led Florida State to a comeback in that game after Jordan Travis was banged up there in the first half. Here's what I've been told about Tate Rodemaker. He has great arm talent. And he's a lot more athletic than you realize, but he's a very smart and cerebral young man that is a coach's kid and also has great intangibles. I mean, he's there at Florida State, has been there for four years and has just wanted to stay in the spot that he's in, learn, develop, and then in time, he's going to get his opportunity. Taking the Carson Beck approach here in the college football world is very different from what it is in so many other places. He was not as highly regarded as a prospect as some of the other guys that have sat around and waited, but still he's a guy that they really like. This was the first commitment that Mike Norvell received when he became the head coach at Florida state. So it's a guy that he's acknowledged. He's a guy that he's noticed and the guy that's gotten much better in the system and much more comfortable in the system these last couple of years. Big thing for Tate Rodemaker in this one is he just has to play really smart. Because Florida is not a team that's going to generate a lot of pressure. They have just 19 sacks on the season. And then five of those came against Arkansas. He's, he's not a team that's going to generate a ton of pressure. And they're also not a team that's going to turn you over. Florida's created just seven turnovers this year. That is 130th in college football. So 
he needs to be smart with the football. Don't take any unnecessary risks and force Florida to be the aggressor and see if they can actually pull that off with a backup quarterback in place. He's got a great supporting cast. He has excellent receivers on the perimeter. He's got a really good run game. His offensive line is a little bit suspect at times, but I think that they'll protect him. And I think Mark, Mike Norvell will have a really good plan to make sure that he's super comfortable in this start against the Florida Gators. A matchup that I'll be paying close attention to on the field will be Greedy Vance against Ricky Pearsall. Ricky Pearsall is a guy that wasn't used enough last week. Just five targets. He's the number one wide receiver for the Florida Gators. Just five targets last week, but he's been the go-to guy for quite a while, and he's just 52 yards away from 1,000 yards on the season. He's had a great year and has had a great couple years since transferring over from Arizona State. And Greedy Vance is one of the better cover guys in the country. Really good in the slot. He can play all over the place. If I were them, I would move Pearsaw into the slot where I'd live primarily, and I would just put Greedy Vance on him if I were Adam Fuller, the defensive coordinator for the Florida State Seminoles. So that'll be really interesting. And then the other aspect of it, the cover guys be a good matchup for sure, but Florida's offensive line needs to be great. They are not great as it relates to sacks given up, given up 33 this year. Uh, their left tackle, Austin Barber, has been out the last couple of weeks, so they've had to move some pieces around. And now you're going up against Jared Verse and Patrick Payton. It's not the great get-right recipe that you want if your tackles have been a little dicey the last couple of weeks. A couple of trends here. Florida's 5-0 and against the spread as a home underdog since 2018. A couple of takeaways from that trend. How is it that Florida has only been a home underdog five times? In the last five years, that was shocking. Number one, two, I'm surprised they played that well in that spot. I think this would be a really good game. I think Florida State will win, but I do not think it will be pretty. I think it's going to be a grinded out game for Florida State. And I think Florida will throw their best punch and probably play well, but I don't think it'll be enough to be able to control the line of scrimmage against a Florida State team that I think is still very, very good and probably has a bit of a chip on their shoulder, given all the things that have been said about their team the last couple of days. Let's move over to the Iron Bowl, one that obviously means a lot to me. Uh, it's one of my favorite games in college football. I have a million stories that we'll save for the offseason about the Iron Bowl, including one from 2009 where we were traveling to play at Auburn and we had a police escort with our buses going from the hotel to the stadium at Jordan-Hare with a police escort and we got stuck in traffic. And we got to the stadium like 90 minutes before kick. Weird things happen on the planes. Just saying weird things happen on the planes. Alabama's won three straight in the matchup. That's the longest winning streak against Auburn under Nick Saban. The last time they won four straight was during a nine-game streak from 1973 to 1981. And the history is not on Auburn's side to pull the upset. Unranked Auburn is just 1-27 against ranked Alabama in the AP poll era. That only win came in 2002. So when Alabama's ranked and Auburn's unranked, it has not ended well for the Auburn Tigers. A couple things to acknowledge in this one. Alabama's pass protection. Now, Alabama in the first eight games of the year was struggling in pass protection. Part of it was the fact that their quarterback, Jalen Milrow, and the others that filled in in the South Florida game, they were holding the ball too long. Uh, so they gave up 35 sacks in the first eight games. But since they went to the bye week and they've played three games since they've given up just three sacks. So they've improved drastically with that, but it's also been part because of Jalen Milrow speeding up his process and being more decisive. 
Alabama since the bye week, they've been a completely different team. The bye week, for those that are unaware, was around October 28th. That was by Saturday. They had that week off. And since that time, they have played against Kentucky, played against LSU, and played against Chattanooga. So kind of take the Chattanooga game out of it because that's not really applicable, I don't think at least. But since the bye week, when you take all the data points into account, they are number one in the country in points per game, 52 points per game. They are number one in third down conversion percentage. They're converting 71% of their third downs. That's the uh, the second best team, by the way, in the country is under 60. So they are 10 points higher, 11 points higher than the second best team in the country since November 1st. Number two team is, is Liberty. They're converting 59%. So Alabama running away with that third down conversion percentage here in the last three weeks. And Jalen Milrow has been a big reason for the growth. Since the bye week, he's actually their leading rusher. 31 carries for 190 since the bye week. And if you look at the first eight games, he had 47 carries. That's not including sacks for 142 yards. So you got to take the the sacks into account and all those things. That does affect your rush yardage. But 31 carries in the last three weeks and 47 carries in the first eight, clearly a big difference with how decisive he's been running the football and taking off when the opportunity presents itself. And it's allowed the receivers to really blossom down the field because now the defenders are keyed in on the backfield and they're going to have a very tough time, I think, accounting for both his legs and staying in coverage and being disciplined in coverage when he takes off. Alabama's receivers have also done a really good job too. Isaiah Bond has kind of emerged as a legitimate go-to guy since the bye week. He's had 18 targets, so they've started to incorporate him a little more. Jermaine Burton missed the Kentucky game, but has shown the ability to take over the game if necessary, like against AM when he went for about 200. Like the biggest position group in the game for Auburn on the defensive side, we'll start there since we're talking Bama offense. I think it's their linebackers. Eugene Asante and Jalen McLeod, they've combined for 18 tackles for a loss and 10 and a half sacks. Those guys are going to have a really big responsibility because Alabama is going to run the football with Jace McClellan. They're going to run the ball with Roy Dell. Williams, they're going to run the ball with Jalen Milrow. Those linebackers have to be really disciplined and trust their eyes because there's going to be some RPOs. There's going to be some things that are going in one direction and they go back the other way. There's going to be some misdirections. Those two guys in particular have to be elite for Auburn to slow down this Alabama offense. So Eugene Asante and Jalen McLeod are the guys that I'm going to be paying very close attention to. And then offensively for the Auburn Tigers, it's all about Jarquez Hunter. Jarquez Hunter is the key. He's their best offensive weapon. Uh, I think he can also be a key in the passing game. We know he's great in the run game. That's that's understandable. But he's also got 16 receptions on the season. And Alabama is still very good against the run. They're not top five like they at one point were annually. But they're still very good against the run. They're 29th in the FBS in rushing yards a game given up. So it's not bad. It's just not what it's been. So I think Jarquez Hunter and Peyton Thorne, to an extent, have to be really good and decisive in the run game. Will Peyton Thorne pull it and get get loose every once in a while? Perhaps that's going to be significant. It's also going to be very important for Auburn to stay on the field on third down. They're one of the worst teams in the country in third down conversion percentage offensively. They're 113th. So against Alabama, you're going to have to stay on the field. Bama's going to get you to third down, but you got to convert. 
And that's demoralizing when a team is continually converting third down over and over and over again. And a big part of converting third down is staying in third manageable. And you can do that by effectively running the football. I think Auburn's offensive line has been pretty good. The disappointing part of Auburn's offense has been the wide receivers. There's a little separation. There's not really a dependable go-to guy that can win those contested catch situations. And I don't think there's going to be a lot of situations where those guys are going to beat up on Terry and Arnold and Kool-Aid McKinstry. I think they're going to have a hard time on the perimeter. So they have to win it with their quarterback run game. They have to win it with their run game traditionally. And they're going to have to be on third, be great on third down and score touchdowns when they get in the red zone. And if there's one thing that has also kind of upended this rivalry from time to time, kicking game. Auburn's not yet where they need to be to go toe-to-toe against Alabama. And if you think about Hugh Freeze, when he beat Nick Saban in 2014 and 2015, he did so with elite weapons at wide receiver. Elite weapons at wide receiver. He doesn't have those right now. So it's going to be really important for them to win the hidden yardage. So they're going to have to win turnover battle. They're going to have to create return games. And they're going to have to be elite on special teams. Auburn right now is sixth in the FBS in special teams efficiency. So that is an area where they're very, very strong. Bama's also very good, but Auburn is elite. Top six nationally in special teams. So maybe they can make a play in special teams to keep this game a little close. I don't see it happen. I think Bama rolls. I think they roll in a big way. Big thing for Bama, are they looking ahead to the Georgia game? Potentially. That's all anyone seems to want to talk about. And they need to focus on the task at hand because Auburn is dangerous, especially in Jordan-Hare. But Auburn is 1-4 and four against the spread against teams with winning records this year. Have not fared well against quality competition in Hugh Freeze's first season. Let's go to the Apple Cup. Washington State at newly minted number four, Washington. Washington is about a 17-point favorite. This will be Saturday, 4 o'clock Eastern time. Series history, Washington leads at 75-33-6. to 33 and six. Washington is 8-1 and one in the last nine matchups against Washington State since 2013. That only loss was in 2021. And each of the last nine Apple Cups have been decided by double digits. So this has not been a game that's been super competitive. Okay? Here's what I think is fascinating about this. I think both teams are crazy similar. They're almost built identically. I mean, they really are. They put a ton on their quarterback, Cam Ward for Washington State, Michael Penix for Washington. Cam Ward's a much more mobile option. He's going to run around and create and make plays and try to kind of play basketball on grass. He'll run around and throw no-look passes and back across his body and outlets. Penix wins more from the pocket, but both teams put a ton on their quarterback. Both teams have talented and perhaps underutilized running backs. Now, Nakia Watson, he's back from injury. He played last Friday, had 47 yards, uh, plus a receiving touchdown. Um, Thought he did a good job on that touchdown catch, by the way, where he kind of surged into the end zone after the catch into the flat. Uh, He's been a little limited, but he did look pretty healthy this past week. And then Dylan Johnson, at times, has been really important. The SC game stands out. But Dylan Johnson, even when he was at Mississippi State, is a very capable downhill runner for the Huskies. So really talented, arguably a little underutilized at running back. Both teams have really adequate edge defenders defensively. Braylon Trice, Ron Stone, like they have really good takeover the game defensive ends. Now, they haven't made the impacts that you'd like to have on a week-to-week basis, but they're comparable. Both teams have been a little bit hit or miss with their production defensively. And these teams are crazy similar. Crazy similar. The problem is everything that Wazoo does really, really well 
Washington just does better. And I think it's going to be really hard to out Washington, Washington. Assuming there's no rain in the forecast, assuming there's no chaos and all those other things. We know that both teams are going to rely on big plays. Let me just go through a couple stats for you just so I can tell you how similar these teams are. All right, Washington State, the average 338 yards passing a game. That's fourth in college football. Well, Washington, 358, 20 more yards. They're first. Washington State is thrown for 3,700 yards, 3721. That's fifth. 80% of their offensive production comes through the air. That's the second highest percentage in the FBS. Number one would be Colorado. So they don't do hardly anything on the ground, but they're fifth as far as yards gained through the air. Well, Washington's second. They've thrown for 39-42. Well, Washington State, they're excellent in creating big plays downfield. 52 passes have gone for 20-plus yards. That's seventh most in the country. Well, Washington's has 63. They're second. So everything Wazoo does really well, Washington does, except better. Now, there's two really notable differences in these offenses. Their identities are similar. What they want to be is similar and to an extent. But there's two very notable differences. One are the sack numbers. Wazoo's given up 34 sacks this year. That's 114th. Already referenced that Cam Ward will kind of run around and make plays in the backfield and, and kind of run around like crazy. Johnny Manziel-esque. Just kind of run around and just instinctive and dumps it. really accurate on the move. But that's led to 34 sacks this year. That's 114th in college football. Washington, conversely, living from the pocket, Penix dotting you up from the pocket. They've given up just seven sacks. That's one big difference, the sack numbers. Second big difference is the wide receiver personnel. Now, with all due respect to Josh Kelly and Lincoln Victor and Kyle Williams and Carlos Hernandez and Cooper Mathers, their tight end, there's a pretty big gap between their ceiling and the ceiling that exists with Washington's personnel on the perimeter. Roma Dunze has gone for over 1,200 yards. He's fifth in the country. Jalen Polk's 22nd in the country, gone for 950. Bernard McMillan, who's finally back healthy, even though he might not necessarily be at 100%. He was the number two coming into the season. So if he gets back to right, then he's on another level. And so far this year, he's got just 311 yards. Jack Westover, the tight end, he's a, he's a contributor too. So their personnel is just superior on the perimeter than that of what Washington State has. And that is one of the biggest difference. Another question, will the team try to create any balance? I mean, at all. Like, why Washington State? We know Washington State's not going to. But will Washington? They've done it in the past. They might do it again here if we see that Wazoo is playing to take away the passing game completely. Now, there is a significant injury possibly for Wazoo. Shaw Smith-Wade, that's a top corner who would obviously be very, very handy when taking on some of these wide receivers. He's missed each of the past four games up in the air as to whether or not he'll be available for this one. So it'd be really nice to get him back for the Cougs if they're going to be able to at least slow down this passing attack to an extent. And then final question, can this finally be the week that Washington's pass rush wakes up? Now, Wazoo already referenced they've given up a ton of sacks. Uh, they're possibly without their left tackle, Esapole, who has been maybe their biggest liability in protection at times this year. But if he's out, and you know what that means, that means that Braylon Trice and Tupu Olufatui, uh, they're going to be pinning their ears back and they're going to be gone. 
if those two guys can finally, they've created pressure, their pressure numbers are good, but they haven't generated a ton of sacks. And it's got to turn into sacks at some point. The other thing is Wazoo's had a bunch of fumbles too. 12 fumbles on the year. It's 130th in college football. Only Clemson and Nebraska are the only two that have more in the Power Five. I think Washington handles their business, but I think it's going to be close. I think Washington State will keep up with them. And I envision this game not being quite 52-42 like it was between SC and uh, and Washington. I see this game being like 38-28 in favor of the Huskies. A couple trends. Washington State is 3-0 against spread against ranked teams in 2023. And four of Washington State's five road games this season have gone over the total. So you would think that Washington State would keep it close. You would also think that this game is going to be a high-scoring affair between the two. Every college football season, Goodyear knows the importance of winning on the road. The road will always demand confidence, the confidence to handle whatever the journey brings and to perform under tough conditions. And just like the players and fans of college football, Goodyear is ready. Are you ready for the road? Visit Goodyear.com to find the right Goodyear tires for whatever road you're on this season. Goodyear, more driven. Traeger is awesome. Let me tell you why. At the Home Depot, Saturdays are about two things. Making all your watch party favorites on the Traeger Ironwood XL Grill and Smoker and football. You can serve up wood-fired flavor every time with consistent cooking. And the intuitive touchscreen makes it easy to control the temperature, which stays steady. So you can keep your mind on the score, not on the temperature. And trust me, when your favorite team is on, that will come in clutch. Traeger is all about versatile cooking, so you can cook grill, smoke, roast, or even bake, which means you can grill some burgers, smoke a pork butt, roast veggies, or even bake a pie. You heard it right. Desserts can be done on a Traeger. With Wi-Fi or technology, you can be in the kitchen preparing some side dishes or on the couch watching the game while everything is cooking for your game day party by controlling your Traeger from anywhere with the easy-to-use app. And when you're done cooking everything for the game, Cleanup is easy thanks to an easily accessible, easy clean grease and ash keg. So don't wait. Upgrade your Saturday with the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Other games to keep an eye on, Georgia and Georgia Tech. I will be on the call for this one. Looking forward to being there. Uh, probably my favorite nickname for a rivalry. Good, clean, old-fashioned hate. It's just so nice. It's just such a nice, nice way of saying I hate you, isn't it? It's, I've always really liked that one. Uh, anyways, Kirby Smart lost his first matchup with Georgia Tech. That feels like forever ago. And since that game, Kirby Smart's Bulldogs are 5-0 and against Georgia Tech and have won by an average of 33.6 points per game. So they're outscoring the Yellow Jackets 217-49 to in this five-game win streak. But Georgia Tech has been a really streaky team this year. And it's a little bit predicated on how Haynes King plays. There have been moments this year where Georgia has been a little susceptible against quarterback run. And Haynes King is a dynamic runner. Great straight line speed, track speed. Problem is he turns it over. And if he turns it over against Georgia, it'll be all she wrote there. in the game between Georgia and Georgia Tech, also known as good, clean, old-fashioned eight. Looking forward to being on the call. It'll be Saturday, 7.30 Eastern time on ABC. Big 12 championship game scenarios uh, already referenced the event earlier in the show where Texas doesn't get in. It's improbable, but basically Texas and Oklahoma state win and in. Okay. 
we'll talk about Oklahoma State in a second, but Oklahoma can clinch a spot with a win and an Oklahoma State loss or a win and a Texas loss and a Kansas State loss. So there is a roundabout way for the Sooners to get in as long as they handle their business on Friday at noon against TCU. Big thing about this one is Dylan Gabriel. Is he available? Is he healthy? Upper body injury last week, uh, right before halftime. Gabriel had played pretty well before exiting, and then Jackson Arnold stepped into the game. He's a very highly regarded prospect, but hadn't played since the Tulsa game. Pleaded just five of nine. Added 24 yards on the ground, but there were some struggles, uh, especially there early in the game. So if Jackson Arnold is, in fact, the starter this weekend, which I think is possible, if not probable, then will the offense dip just a little bit against a TCU team that has an awful lot on the line? Trends in the game, Oklahoma's 4-1 and against the spread in home games in 2023. TCU is 1-7 against the spread in their last eight as a road underdog. So the trends would point towards the Sooners handling their business. BYU is at Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State, like I said, clinches with the win. They can also clinch. <laughs> These Big 12 tiebreaker scenarios honestly make me laugh. Like They're so absurd. And it's going to only be the norm moving forward, too, with the Big Ten going to 20 teams or 18 teams or however many, and the SEC going to 16. And I mean, you're, I mean, it's just going to get even more chaotic and more difficult to digest, but it's fun, I, I suppose. <laughs> All right, Oklahoma State clinches with a win. They can also get to the Big 12 title game with an Oklahoma loss, a Kansas State loss, a West Virginia loss, and a Texas Tech loss. So how about that on your parlay board? Oklahoma losing. Kansas State losing, West Virginia losing, and Texas Tech losing. Uh, I don't know what it would pay, but it'd probably be pretty hefty. Uh, Oklahoma State, you got to think they'd bounce back in this one. BYU's been a mess the last couple weeks. Defensively, they've struggled a little bit. The quarterback issues have been a problem as well since Keaton Slovis got banged up. So I think that this is going to be an easy win for Oklahoma State. I don't think it's going to be a huge challenge. Uh, they're at home. In the event in which they were on the road, I could see it being much more difficult, but I think they'll handle their business and get the job done. Even though there were moments last week where I felt like BYU was playing a little bit better. It did look like they played a little bit better last week, but not sure it's going to be enough to close the gap with Oklahoma State. Iowa State is at Kansas State. Kansas State clinches a spot with a win, an Oklahoma loss and an Oklahoma State loss. Uh, I'm not sold on Iowa State right now. I think Kansas State will handle their business. They should be in a good spot, especially looking at just how Texas is able to get after that offensive line. I think Iowa State's going to have a tough time being able to create some balance against Kansas State, who's very stout on the defensive front. Texas A&M at LSU. Why are we watching this one? Well, because I think the best player in college football is playing in the game. Now, best player in college football does not necessarily mean he's going to win the Heisman Trophy. I think he has done everything in his power to put himself in position to have a chance to be considered as a Heisman Trophy winner. Jaden Daniels is amazing. And I, I don't care about stats from Georgia State. I don't care. I don't, I really, to be honest with you, I don't really care about stats that much at all. Um, it's not really when I vote on the Heisman, like uh, put it this way, I voted on a defensive player not to win it, but I've had a defense player in my top three, like seven times. So I, I don't always go on stats. I go on the guys that I think are most beneficial to their team. The guys that give their team the best chance, the guys that can take over the game at any one given moment, but every single offensive metric for the most part supports Jaden Daniels being the best player in the sport. He is. Now, whether or not you want to award him the Heisman Trophy is up to the voters. Uh, some people don't 
think that a team, the guy playing on a team with three losses should win it, which is perfectly fine. That's well within your right to acknowledge that. Um, and he might very well not have the platforms that Michael Penix has or Bo Nix has or even Marvin Harrison Jr. has, even though it feels like he's a little bit of a long shot at the moment. Uh, even uh, Carson Beck, he might not have the the opportunities on and the platforms that, that those guys are going to have. But I'm just telling you, as someone that's watched probably every snap of Jaden Daniels' season, there has not been anybody that's played at a higher level than him. Will he win it? We'll find out. But if he puts up a big game statistically against Texas A&M, that would probably go a long way towards impacting his odds of potentially getting the job done. Um, after all, I mean, the eight touchdown performance last week, that improved his odds. He went from being the second favorite to the favorite after a game against Georgia State, which I find amazing, but everyone views it a little bit differently. The Egg Bowl, this one will be Thursday night. Uh, so enjoy this one tomorrow. Nothing better than two teams that absolutely hate each other right after you stuff your face with Thanksgiving food. I've called this game four times. This one means a lot to me. I like this game a lot. Uh, it was at one point maybe the dirtiest game I've ever called. Um, cheap shots, fights, Matt Corral getting in fights with with uh, you know Mississippi State defender. I, it's a crazy game. It's a really entertaining game. Two teams that loathe each other and a big opportunity for Mississippi State. Um, the Bulldogs won the, won the game last year, 24-22. Um, Ole Miss failed on the two-point conversion with a buck 25 remaining in the fourth quarter. But if you look at Ole Miss, how they've performed offensively against Mississippi State, since 2015, they have been rolling. Offensively, they average 30 points per game, 400 plus yards a game. Uh, so they've been really good since 2015. They're three and one uh, in these games against Mississippi State at, at Mississippi State. Excuse me. So they've played really well on the road in these settings before. So I would anticipate them doing it again, even though I do think Mississippi State has a couple defenders that are legit at the second level. A couple trends in this one. Mississippi State is 0 and 6 against the spread in their last six games. It's a home underdog. Ole Miss is 5-0-1 against the spread as a road favorite since 2021. And then finally, Wisconsin and Minnesota, the border battle. The winner will get Paul Bunyan's axe. Pretty cool. This will be the 117th consecutive meeting between Minnesota and Wisconsin that extends the longest uninterrupted streak of rivalry games played in FBS history. The teams have met every year since 1907, and remarkably, it's tied 62-62-8. and so two teams that have not been great offensively this year will go toe-to-toe -to -toe for the Battle of the Axe. All right, before we put a bow on the show, let's talk about some conference championship clinching scenarios. Four of the 10 conference championship games are set as of this moment. In the ACC, you have Florida State and Louisville. In the SEC, you have Georgia and Alabama. In the MAC, you have Toledo and Miami, Ohio. And in Conference USA, you have Liberty against New Mexico State. In the Pac-12, Washington has clinched. Oregon will clinch with a win against Oregon State or an Arizona loss at Arizona State. So Arizona, heavy favorite against Arizona State. Oregon, a heavy favorite against Oregon State. All signs point to the Ducks being the second team in the Pac-12 title game. In the American, SMU clinches a spot in the championship game with a win. And then the UTSA... Tulane winner clinches a spot in the championship game. If SMU loses, 
then the second spot in the championship game will be determined by the highest composite average of select computer rankings between SMU and the loser of UTSA and Tulane. I don't understand it, but hopefully the selected computer rankings of Anderson and Hester, Billingsley, Coley, and Wolf, they know what they're doing. Just tell me who's playing and we'll break it down next week. How's that sound? Sunbelt. Troy's already clinched the West. Coastal Carolina clinches the East with a win against James Madison or an Appalachian State loss against Georgia Southern. Appalachian State clinches the East with a win against Georgia Southern and a Coastal Carolina loss to James Madison. So James Madison lost last week. That's still very much a factor in who is going to go to the Sun Belt title game. They're, of course, not eligible this year after the NCAA ruled that they cannot compete in the postseason, at least at the moment. In the Mountain West, UNLV clinches a spot with a win against San Jose State. If UNLV wins, then the winner of Air Force Boise will be the other team. If San Jose State beats UNLV, then three teams will be tied at 6-2. and two, San Jose State, UNLV, and the Air Force Boise State winner. And I don't know how they're going to determine that. They haven't told me just yet, and I didn't see enough information to understand exactly how that tiebreaker is going to go. Hopefully the last one of the matrixes like they have with the other things. I, these computer ranking things are like beyond me. I don't understand it, but I digress. There are a bunch of teams seeking bowl eligibility here in week 13. 24 teams have a chance to pick up their sixth win and reach bowl eligibility this year, but there are no matchups this weekend between teams that both have five wins, which would have been kind of cool. Like win and you go to the postseason, lose and you go home. There's not a single matchup like that. But 11 of the 24 teams that are seeking bowl eligibility are favored, which is kind of interesting. UCF can get to bowl eligible against Houston. Virginia Tech can get to bowl eligible on the road at Virginia. Illinois can go bowling with a win against Northwestern. Nebraska can go bowling in Matt Rule's first year with a win at home against the Iowa Hawkeyes. South Carolina can go bowling if they beat Clemson for the second consecutive year, which would be a remarkable feat after what's been a very up-and-down season for the Gamecocks. Florida can punch their ticket to the bowl season by beating Florida State this weekend, even though that feels like a little bit of a long shot, but it's certainly plausible. Uh, ESPN Analytics giving them about a 20% chance of being able to pull that one off. BYU can go bowling if they win at Oklahoma State. Mississippi State can go bowling if they beat Ole Miss. TCU can go bowling if they win at Oklahoma. And Washington State will go to the postseason if they win at Washington. That's in the Power Five. There are way too many others in the group of five. So if your team has five wins, know that I'm pulling for you. I want everyone to be able to go to a bowl game. That would be terrific. And like we do every single week, we give you some giant killers. Um, this week is a little bit tougher because it's a rivalry game. Is it really a giant killer scenario, right? Is it, I don't know. Uh, to me, using Florida as a giant killer against Florida State, perhaps, but I'm going to use it. Um, these are not, we're not predicting these upsets. I told you earlier that I think Florida State's going to beat Florida. We're not predicting these upsets. All I'm saying is that if the team that is considered the quote giant, if they don't play well, they're going to lose. They better be ready to roll. Florida is a giant killer this week against the Florida State Seminoles. Listed why all the reasons a little bit earlier. I do think they will be tough. And if Max Brown plays great, they will absolutely have a chance against Florida State. UT San Antonio is a giant killer against Tulane. Tulane currently right now, if the season ended today, would be going to the New Year's Six. 
UTSA is in their way, and I think this will be maybe the toughest test on Tulane's schedule that they've faced up to this point. New Mexico, fresh off a nice win last week. They're a giant killer against Utah State. Washington State is a giant killer against Washington. I told you how these teams match up very, very closely. I think they're comparable with their styles of attack. And if Cam Ward goes off and if Washington has a less than stellar performance defensively, they could definitely pull off the upset. It wouldn't shock me whatsoever. But I think Washington is elite. I think they're better at Wazoo than in pretty much every category that Wazoo's good in. So I favor Washington, but I think Washington State will certainly make it interesting. And then finally, I think Oregon State will make it interesting in Oregon. I do. I think that that game has a chance to go down to the wire. It just depends on whether or not Oregon State can control the flow of the game. If they can't control the flow of the game, they could get run out of the gym. But if they can, they can have some of those 10-minute drives like they had a week ago, and that game shrinks and all the pressure gets put on the Oregon Ducks offense to be able to manufacture plays, even though they might not have the rhythm that they normally have when navigating throughout the course of the game. For all of us here at Always College Football, can't tell you how much we appreciate you guys for all that you've done for us this season. I know that it's Thanksgiving time. Everyone's with their families. I hope you're listening to this podcast as you're driving to go be with loved ones for the holiday. Know that we are so remarkably thankful for you. We wouldn't be able to do this if it weren't for your support. We wouldn't be able to do this for all the people that have reached out, sent us messages, left us comments, left us ratings, left us reviews. We wouldn't do it if it weren't for you. We do this for you guys. We love the sport. You love the sport. And we feel like this is our little home to be able to talk about the sport on a week-to-week basis. So thank you to all of you that have made this such a special season. Plenty more to come. We're not done. Plenty more to come, but I'm very thankful for you. Know that for all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark, Jake, Jack, the other Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have an amazing, amazing Thanksgiving weekend. Enjoy the rivalry games. We'll be back on Sunday to break it all down. And for all of us here at Always College Football, happy Thanksgiving. And remember, it's Always College Football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.